0: Welcome to episode 152 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux news From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tanell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a ton of big news. We've got distro news from Red Hat for RHEL 8.4. SUSE made a lot of announcements at SUSEcon. We've also got a new release from Gecko Linux that made some interesting changes that we're going to talk about. And also in app news, we're going to check out the latest releases of the popular editor, Sublime Text, and Elements new feature called Spaces. And I'm Quite excited for the spaces. It's a big difference from the previous version. Uh, then we'll check out the hardware space, where there's some new laptops from Introware and Tuxedo Computers to check out. Plus, we got a really cool hardware topic related to space and satellites. So stick around for that. And later in the show, we've got a topic to cover that has uh, quite a bit of drama attached to it, and that's the news regarding the situation around the FreeNode IRC network. So all that and so much more coming up right now on Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. Up first in the show this week, we have some distro news to talk about. And first up in that, we're going to talk about RHEL or Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.4 being released. Uh, RHEL 8.4 brings important features like uh, edge deployments, hybrid cloud, and enhancements for uh, operators and developers and organizations that are standardized on rail and to quote from their announcement page with rail 8.3 we announced a deployment option for rail to help solve challenges common to edge computing environments and with 8.4 we have built on that built on top of that work to improve the user experience around edge computing capabilities in rail. RHEL 8.4 simplifies updates and provides additional options for installing to disconnected systems. And to be clear, a lot of edge systems are pretty much disconnected because uh, that's kind of the purpose of them. And it adds the, adds the ability to use the OS tree repositories with OCI container images. Now, to break down like some more specific things that are happening in this latest release, uh, RHEL 8.4 features Intel Tiger Lake graphic support. Uh, they have expanded the support for or the capabilities of the eBPF kernel. There's also some uh, improvements to uh, the namespace, uh, the time namespace and other kernel features backported, uh, various package updates, Python 3.9 availability, and many, many more things for this, you know, enterprise Linux operating system. Another thing I wanted to talk about was really interesting is the the images for real time. So this is basically users can now use the real time kernel in their edge images. And speaking of edge, I edge computing in general, I am really really interested in seeing this this cool project that is being made by IBM that was announced at the Red Hat Summit, and this is called Mas 400 or M A S 400, or what that stands for is Mayflower autonomous ship a fully autonomous ai powered marine research vessel so it's equipped with 6 ai powered cameras 30 onboard sensors and 15 edge devices with a grand total of 0 humans on board so this is really interesting because the mass provides a flexible cost-effective, and safe option for gathering critical data about the ocean because no humans are there because it's doing AI-based systems. They say that it can spend long durations at sea carrying scientific equipment and making its own uh, decisions about how to optimize its route and mission. Plus, once it is launched, anyone will be able to track the progress and location of the MAS 400, mass 400, on their website on a map, which is really cool. This is supposed to be happening sometime around June, and I can't wait to see what happens with this, because this is a very interesting use case of edge computing, because uh, you know, we one of the things that we know the littlest about in terms of science is the ocean. We know a lot about it, but it's so vast, we don't know that much, so... Uh, having something like this where it can spend, you know, so much more time just doing research and that sort of thing because it's unmanned is very, very interesting to see. So I'm looking forward to seeing like the information that comes from this kind of research. If you'd like to learn more about, well, the Mayflower Autonomous Ship, I'll have a link in the show notes for that, as well as a link to Red Hat's Rail uh, 8.4 release notes. Up next in the show, we have a lot of interesting news from Susa. There's the Susa IPO, which is big news, plus also Susacon happened recently. And there's also a lot of stuff that was announced at Susacon that I want to talk about. And we're going to jam it all together into a single topic, which I'm going to call the Susa Sub Sandwich. Just uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, this is really interesting because the Swedish private equity firm EQT that purchased SUSE in 2018 has, annou- has gone through the process of doing an IPO for SUSE. Now, they originally were wanting a 34 euro per share IPO, but instead SUSE shares opened at 29.50 euros uh, per share and also uh, eventually settled by the close of business on May 20th at 30, do- 30 euros per or 30.39 cents euros i don't know is it is it cents for euros i don't know uh some have called this a disappointment for susa and eqt which i think is interesting because it is worth noting that this gave it a market cap of around 5 billion euros or approximately 6.1 billion usd and it might not be what they hope for but it wasn't a failure by any stretch and susa and its backers sold uh, 37.8 million shares in in the IPO for 1.1 billion euros and eqt will still remain the co- the company's largest shareholder with a stake of 77.6% which is definitely interesting because and with just you know taking a company that you purchased from uh, a couple of years ago, to making this huge play and turning it to a public company is like is a really interesting uh, business decision, and they seemingly made money off of this, so it does seem like a good deal. Plus, uh, SUSE itself continues to do well with reported revenue of over five hundred million dollars for the twenty twenty financial year, and also the acquisition of Rancher Labs is a major. Uh, Kubernetes move, as well as in addition to like the containers and cloud move and that sort of stuff. It's really, really interesting play, uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff they're doing that we'll get to in a second. But it's kind of interesting because of how SUSE's history has changed over the years, because people have been worried about SUSE for, you know, because they were purchased so many times over the years. That you know, people were worried when EQT purchased them again. But based on the track record of what has happened since that purchasing, Susa has just constantly been improving, and and just it's been fantastic for it. You know, especially with this new uh, public version of the company. So, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Susa has changed uh, ownership over you know over the years multiple times. Like Susa was acquired by Novell in 2004. Attachmate bought Novell. Uh, in 2010, and then in 2014, Micro Focus purchased AttachMate, and then they decided to spin off uh, SUSE into an independent division, which that division was purchased by EQT in 2018, and this is, it's kind of like a, you know, complicated history. I might be going into more details about, like, the history of SUSE, because it is really interesting, because, you know, SUSE started as a a, uh, a base layer on top of uh, Slackware, which is, you know, pretty, in- pretty interesting overall, but That's uh, another topic for another day. Uh, But this is really cool because this whole separation into a public company gives a lot more room for SUSE to grow, and they have been growing significantly over the past couple of years already, and there's just so much more that it can do, especially with this new change of their approach to uh, the enterprise distribution as well as the OpenSUSE Leap distribution because... Uh, Sle or SUSE Linux Enterprise 15 SP3 or 15.3 specifically uh, will have binary compatibility with OpenSUSE Leap as also the server edition naturally of SLES but the OpenSUSE Leap part with Sle is really interesting because uh, for example you know there was some you know hubbub as you could call it for Red Hat in uh, December of last year when they announced the uh, ending of CentOS Linux as a distro and d- and putting more focus on CentOS Stream, and this is to make it more like it, I think that it's actually a good thing for everybody on that thing. I might make a video on that as well, but it's I think it's really cool because uh, this change that SUSE is doing is not at all in reaction to what Red Hat did because they've been doing this for a couple of years and that would be kind of impossible for them to react. Within like six months, so drastically, but uh, it just—it's kind of a funny coincidence because that's really what it is. It is a coincidence, uh, but because Red Hat decided to put more focus on making Rail available for more people rather than using a CentOS, uh, you know, uh, endpoint for people to get into, because CentOS was at the time CentOS Linux had some interesting structures of the fact that. People thought that it was like a downstream to Red Hat and also an upstream sort of for like the community to participate, but that's not how it really worked. So there was times where you'd have to wait months to get updates because it, w- it didn't really even have a point release system. It just kind of pulled in from Red Hat, which is, you know, not the smoothest thing. But the way that SUSE is doing it with OpenSUSE Leap is very, very interesting. So the structure is starting with Tumbleweed where they have a Bleeding Edge rolling distribution that does all the testing and all the you know craziness of what Bleeding Edge typically does. And then they uh, kind of take a snapshot of of Tumbleweed and create Slea from it. So you have SUSE Linux Enterprise based on a period of time where they snapshotted Tumbleweed. And then at that point, they take SLEE and put that into Open Seas- OpenSUSE Leap, and then do some extra community stuff on top of it. So essentially, OpenSUSE Leap is a downstream of SLEE, and Tumbleweed is an upstream to all of it. So it's a really cool structure that i uh, realizing I need to make a video about again. So there's a lot of videos, apparently, that I need to do from this particular topic. Uh, because this is just really cool. So this move that SuSE did in an IPO, this the change between uh, having the Open SuSE leap and SuSE Linux Enterprise being separate, uh, but are now combined into a you know a much smoother transition period of you know Open is the starting point, then it goes into SuSE and then it goes back to Open It's a very very interesting structure that I guarantee I will make a video about to clarify because I don't know if I explained it as well as I could normally with doing a video structure. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular topic, as well as the other topics in the SUSE's sub-sandwich, I'll have links in the show notes below. Speaking of SUSE, let's talk about a derivative of OpenSUSE, and that is Gecko Linux. So Gecko Linux 999.210517.0 was released. Rolls right off the tongue. Actually, the the way that the version system is made, it doesn't. It does make sense once you look at it after you know for a while. <laughs> but the 999 part is just to reply to uh, referring to the rolling release based on uh, OpenSUSE tumbleweed, and that one's always 999 dot something. And then the other part is just the date, so 2021 May 17th. So that's where it comes from. And then .0 is just like for point releases based on when they needed to do updates and that sort of stuff. So it's a really interesting versioning scheme. I, I've not seen that very often or if ever, but still, it's still interesting. They also do something similar with the, the, uh, the Gecko Linux Static, which is based on OpenSUSE Leap. So with OpenSUSE Leap 15.2, you have Gecko Linux uh, 152 point whatever date and that sort of stuff. So, anyway, this next release of of Gecko Linux 999.210517.0 has a lot of changes in it that have like for example the default file system has now been changed to butterfs Which makes sense because it was actually kind of interesting that it wasn't ButterFS before since OpenSUSE and SUSE are so heavily involved in the development of ButterFS. So, of course, they use it. So it was interesting for them for Gecko Linux to not have it. But that is now the default uh, file system for the various uh, guided installation options in the Calamari's uh, installer. And it also comes with transparent Z-standard data compression. It also has enabled out-of-the-box ZRAM swap And the early OOM daemon, I'm not sure if it's early OOM or early OOM, I want it to be early OOM, so I'm going to go with that, is also enabled to, by default, to help prevent unrecoverable system freezes in low memory situations. So Gecko Linux has three different versions. They have the static and rolling that I've already talked about, and they also have the Gecko Linux Next, which is, you know, it's kind of like rolling, but not rolling. So it is based on the uh, OpenSUSE Leap release, but it has newer stuff like different components or ble- bleeding edge, rather than having the whole thing like tumbleweed would. And what makes Gecko Linux different from other o- OpenSUSE based distributions is that it uses the Calamari's installer. Uh, it has support for pro- proprietary media formats and various media apps thanks to uh, Pac-Man repository out of the box and some other stuff. There's also multiple different editions you can check out if you want. So that, like the latest uh, rolling release introduces uh, GNOME 40 support, uh, Plasma 5.21.5, uh, LX-Cute 0.17, Budgie 10.5.3, and many, many more. Uh, so if you want to check out a derivative of OpenSUSE, you can check out Gecko Linux 99... Well, 999.210517.0, right? Links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. And what does that mean? Well, it helps you rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale your apps with high scalability, zero infrastructure management, which means that you simply just point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform, and it will do all the heavy lifting for you. For example, it handles the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies, so you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also secures your apps automatically by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates, and also protecting your apps from DDoSing. Attacks. It has support for multiple programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for Docker, static sites, and container images. You can run code on the app platform with little to no customization because it uses cloud native open standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have some interesting news to talk about, and you could even call it drama-related news that relates to the Freenode IRC network. So if you're not familiar, IRC is internet relay chat. It is a very old style of communication that is very popular when it comes to open source software projects and like how they do development discussions, user support, and many other things. And Freenode is an IRC network that has been around for more than two decades and it's very popular in various open source software projects and that sort of stuff. Uh, And it has been been so for a very long time. Now, due to a situation that some are calling a hostile takeover, not me, some are calling that, most, if not all of the volunteer staff are leaving the network. And some projects are looking to move to alternative chat platforms. Some are considering other IRC networks, and others are considering just adopting matrix slash slash element as the main project platforms and now this is a developing story so I will not be providing my own opinion on this until further info is known. So this is more about letting you know what is happening at this situation and you can choose for yourself your opinion. I will provide links in the show notes for a lot of details related to this topic. There will be a lot of links if you would like to you know dig in deeper. Once we know more about what is going on, then we can discuss it more in depth then but for now, Here is the gist of it. So I'll give you one side of the story and then follow that up with another side. Uh, So we're going to talk about the Libra chat side and then the uh, Freenode side. So so Klein, uh, a former uh, staff at Freenode, said that some time ago, Crystal, the former head of Freenode staff, sold Freenode Limited, a holding company to a third party uh, named Andrew Lee, under terms that were not disclosed to the staff body. It turns out that this contract did indeed intend to sell the entire network and its holdings, a fact hidden from the staff. Mr. Lee at the time had promised to never exercise any operational control over Freenode. Now, the reminder, this is a quote from Klein, not my opinion. Also continuing on, Klein says that in the past few weeks, we began to realize that this had, has changed and Mr. Lee has sought to assert total legal control over the network, including user data. Despite our best efforts, the legal advice the Freenode staff has obtained is that the contract signed by the previous head of staff cannot be fought with a reasonable likelihood of success. Now, they go- this is actually g- continues on with more, but I wanted to kind of break it from here and switch to the response that Andrew Lee provided in response to the uh, situation. So Andrew Lee is the owner of Freenode Limited and also the founder of the VPN service Private Internet Access and London, London Trust Media, which was the owner of Private Internet Access. I'm not, I am not—I don't know how much uh, Andrew Lee is involved right now with either of those, though, since the sale of Private Internet Access to CAPE Technologies and that sort of stuff. So I'm not sure if he is involved in it anymore, but he was the founder of it. So there you go. So... Andrew Lee responded with this, and I quote, there's going to be a lot of paragraphs of quotes here, so, you know, stick with me. Uh, Since 2013, I have been a major sponsor of Freenode, providing servers and funding through one of my companies. I have no intention to stop this in the future. The rumors of a hostile takeover are simply untrue. I've been the guardian and owner of Freenode since 2017 when Crystal, the former owner, approached me and asked if I was interested in purchasing it, as we had in previous years discussed this. So they, Andrew continues on with saying, in April of this year, after Crystal uh, had resigned, I was approached by new head of staff Tamal. I'm not, I don't know the pronunciation, but it's T-O-M-A-W, who asked if we could have ownership over the domains. I responded with my wish to decentralize the network. Subsequently, I learned that I was locked out of the account. After a few a few days later, when I asked for access backed, I was denied, and suddenly a story that I was attempting a hostile takeover began to spread. And Andrew continues with, at this point, I became worried about the safety of FreeNode. It was odd that FreeNode Limited, represented by me, was locked out of FreeNode's accounts when I used to access, uh, when I used to have access the whole time. After subsequent attempts to get access back, I resorted to reaching out through an attorney. Finally, Tamal re- voluntarily handed back all of the access to FreeNode Limited. So he says that this is good news as FreeNode will continue to run as it had with the support it has always had. Uh, furthermore, Tamal and I have engaged in civil discussion, as we are both in agreement as it relates to wishing for Freeno to continue to what it has been. What it has been. Uh, I am optimistic these discussions will end with a pr- uh, pr- positive result for the community, which is the most important participant here. Now, this is interesting because there's a lot of drama here. There's one side saying it's a hostile takeover, the other side saying this is not at all that, and there's kind of some you know a muddy waters related to who did the takeover in terms of like say, talking about the access and that sort of stuff. Now, again, not providing an opinion here because I need to spend a lot more time researching this topic than was available to me this week. So, in the future, I may, you know, talk about it in more details when we get more information about it and that kind of thing, you know, in a future episode. But there have been people talking about some interesting stuff related to uh, like the sponsorship and logos. And this was also addressed uh, by Freenode or by Andrew Lee on this. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of people talking about how the logos that were being placed uh, for one of his companies, Shells.com, was somehow in violation to the thing. But the logo for private internet access has been on the Freenode website for years. So it's kind of weird that that would be a, a factor. I don't know if that's really a factor or not, there's a lot. There's some people saying it is, and some people saying it's not. So you know, whatever. But anyway, uh, a lot of the FreeNode staff decided to resign, and they decided to create their own server or IRC network as an alternative, uh, carrying the the same uh, ethos that they had at FreeNode. So it's kind of interesting how they're doing it. Uh, it's it's called Libera Chat, L I B E R A dot chat, and uh, many projects have announced the intent to move off of Freenode, while a number of other projects are still considering, you know, continuing to discuss the possible move on their respective mailing lists like Cute uh, uh, and Ubuntu and Fedora and uh, those things are still discussing whether or not they should and, you know, that sort of stuff. It's a really interesting situation and it's very fresh in terms of like this. There's a lot of stuff that can change. As I said, it's developing story. This stuff can change, you know, at any given time. Uh, It's there's a lot of different uh, pieces to figure out this puzzle and some of the projects departing Freenode are moving to LibraChat, like I mentioned while others are moving to OFTC and other platforms. If you're not familiar OFTC is the open and free technology community which is a member project of the SPI or software in the public interest which is a nonprofit organization which was founded to help organizations develop and distribute open hardware and open software. And aside from this IRC network shakeup, you know, it's kind of interesting because over the past few years, there's been a growing number of projects that have looking to move away from IRC as a whole, or at least as a primary, for example, like going to Matrix or Element, and even some doing uh, discourse or other forum type software to, you know, push their stuff from a chat, a real-time chat thing to a, a discourse forum or some other kind of forum. And also other you know, communication alternatives, like not necessarily Slack, although some do use Slack, but it's more of like the alternatives to Slack and that kind of thing. Uh, It's it's really interesting. And this is a pretty uh, hostile topic. So uh, again, as a developing story, I will keep you updated on what's going on when we know more. But in the meantime, if you would like to check out the links yourself to see all the different opinions from the former staff as well as from Freenode and and that sort of stuff. I'll have links a lot of links in the show notes below. Speaking of alternatives to IRC we're going to talk about element spaces which is a new feature for the matrix chat client element and this is a very uh, welcomed feature Uh, much much anticipated feature because it's been on the roadmap for quite a while and this allows you to essentially uh, better organize your uh, chats and rooms inside of element so for a little while they had this community feature and it had some limitations and it had some issues and some people would you know have to create multiple rooms and invite people to those rooms or create in a community and invite people to those communities and all is and it is just kind of a mess but this is a, a, a look uh, this is a much anticipated update for a lot of people including myself. I was in the group of people who were not really a fan of the community feature. And Spaces, while still in beta, just to be clear, still in beta, is a big difference. So, the difference between the two is uh, uh, is a also a thing that I have been wanting and that's the ability to better organize my different sections inside of Element. So, Let's talk about spaces in general. What are spaces? Spaces are a way to group rooms and people together or whatever in uh, various different structures. So there's three different types of spaces. There's the public spaces, private spaces, and the personal spaces. Now, Public spaces are optimized for communities, essentially shared and discovered using links anywhere you'd want to share it. So like the DLN community or the Destination Linux Network has a community on Matrix. So you can check out the Destination Linux Network Matrix room. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes if you want to check it out, but it's destinationlinux.network slash community. You can find all sorts of links there for Matrix as well as other platforms if you want to as well. So if you want to join the Matrix community on DLN or the DLN community on Matrix, whatever, then find links in the show notes for that. Uh, There's also private spaces, which is really interesting because this is a way to optimize for uh, private teams like companies and that sort of stuff to uh, have invite-only access and also make it easier for people to explore the different rooms that are a part of the spaces and that sort of stuff. Like DLN is using a private instance of uh, matrix slash element to uh, have our... You know, inner network conversations and that sort of stuff. It's very, very useful in that sense, but the community structure was not ideal. And there's a new, a bunch of new features in spaces that are great that I'm happy to, you know, be able to play with now. It's still in beta again, but I'm already much, much more pleased with this versus communities. And one of the main reasons is because of the personal spaces. So, Personal Spaces allows you to organize any of your conversations in any way you want to. Now, this could be having a, a space just for private messages, a space just for specific rooms. So like if you want to have a room that has all the DLN conversations you want, you could do that. Or if you want to have a room that is specific to uh, various different uh, uh, distros, like if you want to have a group a space that is just for SUSE or a space that's just for Fedora or Ubuntu and that sort of stuff, you could do that with this new Spaces thing. Now, I have been beta testing it since they launched it, and it has been a nice improvement over communities by a lot. And the personal spaces is the critical piece that makes it better. So communities required acceptance by the user to be added to a community. So if all you wanted to do was use it to organize your conversations, you would have to get permission from each person you put in the community. This was such a headache because, you know, I very quickly abandoned attempting organizing in that way because the the community system in Element Client was uh, frustrating, as you can imagine. So personal spaces means I can now organize it however I want without any needless invitation barrier in the way. It kind of acts like creating folders for your conversations and folders for your other rooms and that sort of stuff. But it's not just like in a folder structure where you specifically put it in this one thing you can have. Uh, the same room or the same conversation in multiple spaces, kind of like a tagging system, or you could say the folder slash tag combination, whatever. It's really good. I'm really happy to see spaces being uh, deployed on Element. So how do you enable spaces? Well, on the desktop, uh, you you go to the section on the far left sidebar, and there is a icon button, and this will essentially activate the... Uh, spaces panel. Now it's already technically there, but you have to click that icon to then agree to be a part of the beta. And then the full support comes. Uh, And if you have Android, it's already enabled by default. Just need to update your element Android app. And if you have iOS, well, it doesn't have spaces yet. So you'll have to wait, but you can still use it on the desktop. So there's that, I guess. Now they have a lot of future plans coming that I am also excited about because. One of the things that kind of annoyed me about communities is because I could put people in the community, but I couldn't have them auto join different rooms. And on a private instance for like company network stuff, I would want it to be easy to get into the rooms or like, for example, it would you would require you to do a bunch of kind of like, you know, moving pieces around in order to make it work. And it was just it was kind of annoying. But this now is going to have auto joining rooms when joining a space. So this means that people, our members, could easily see a uh, the various different rooms inside of the spaces and quickly and easily get into them, which is nice. Uh, and also user permissions that are from on not not just on rooms themselves, but also on spaces, which allows admins and moderators of spaces to be able to manage all rooms and easily manage the space in general, like when you remove people from the space and stuff like that. It's that's much much nicer than the current thing. So I'm really happy that element is doing this. And also they're going to be doing like subspaces, which is essentially nested spaces inside of spaces. And that's something I'm also looking forward to as well as improving other things. Like there's one cool aspect of the bridge system. So they have space bridges, which is essentially taking uh, from other platforms and then creating spaces based on those platforms so essentially you could have kind of no space and no people in the space uh, but create a bridge between uh, ms teams uh, like microsoft teams or other uh, platforms and be able to essentially create uh, workspaces and certain stuff like that all Combined in together and really quickly migrate from one to the other. It's an interesting approach, and I think the bridge system also means that you can have like conversations on both at the same time. But I, it's, it's kind of uh, you know iffy on that one. So uh, maybe not. But anyway, I'm looking forward to many of the plans that are on this roadmap. But for now, this is a welcome update. And reminder: Dylan has a community slash space on Matrix slash Element. You yeah. know. So if you want to join us by going to destinationlinux.network slash community, you can get involved there as well as other platforms we're on, because we're on quite a few. And if you want to learn more about this particular topic and the spaces concept itself, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of the Text Editor Sublime Text or Sublime Text 4. So this has a lot of improvements to the text editor. This is actually my preferred text editor. So if you're wondering why it's on the show, well, one, it runs on Linux. And two, uh, I like using Sublime Text, so I'm talking about it. So Sublime Text 4 has a refreshed UI Uh, It has a new adaptive themes that have been refreshed with like the tab styles and interactive pane dimming. And also the themes and color schemes support auto dark mode switching. So if your system is using a theme that is dark mode, it will uh, adaptively uh, change itself to fit that mode as well as uh, custom title bars can be be, uh, modified with this adaptive theme. And also they have a new uh, context aware autocomplete feature. Now they already had autocomplete inside of Sublime Text, but this new one is much nicer. It allows you to have a drop-down window that gives you different choices that are much cleaner because it it did sort of do that previously, but not as uh, efficient and fast. So this new autocomplete engine has been rewritten to provide uh, smart completions based on existing code in a project. Uh, suggestions are also augmented with info about the, the kind of stuff, also providing links to definitions of the different syntaxes and different uh, languages. So you, you can have content that's that the context-aware gives you auto completes of stuff that's already in your document, but also it can give you different information about uh, different code languages and that sort of stuff. So that's uh, a very, very uh, fantastic improvement, as well as also they have improved the syntax definition. So the syntax highlighting engine has been significantly improved with new features like uh, handling non-deterministic grammar, uh, multi-line constructs, uh, lazy embeds, and a lot of other stuff. Uh, And also, for those who are wondering why I use Sublime Text, well, I use Sublime Text because it has a lot of cool features, and I might talk about it in the future on its own video because there's a lot of them. But multiple cursors is one of the best things inside of text editing, and it was invented by Sublime, which essentially means that you can hold control and click anywhere you want and start editing all at all at the same time on those different pieces. It's better to desc- to show it than describe it. But, you know, anyway, but in addition to that, Sublime Text is very, very fast. It has the ability to uh, load very quickly, almost instantaneously. And it also uses very little resources because it, it is native software. It's not running through Electron or whatever uh, and that kind of thing. But in addition to that, Sublime Text said we could make it faster, so they have now made it run, use uh, GPU acceleration, right? So GPU rendering of an already fast text editor, why not? So they say this results in a fluid UI with all the way up to 8K resolutions while using less power than before. Now, it is disabled by default, but it's really quick. You just change the preferences and you add one line and you can activate it. I'll have that information in the show notes if you want to do that, if you use Sublime. They've also updated the Python API. So the Sublime Text API has been updated to Python 3.8, while also keeps a backwards compatibility with packages built for Sublime Text 3, which is very important to note because having uh, the full compatibility with version 3 of Sublime Text is important. So it means that you can just kind of have a drop-in replacement if you are using Sublime Text 3 already like I did. So when I upgraded, all of my stuff kept working, which is awesome. Now, in addition to this, Sublime Text now has added support for Wayland on Linux Uh, which is great for those who are using Wayland. And another thing that they did that uh, I've actually wanted for a very long time is the ability to use Sublime Text on Linux ARM builds. So using it on a Raspberry Pi or the Pinebook Pro or stuff like that, where I previously had to do, I couldn't use, it was only for 64-bit x86, basically. Uh, And now having it on uh, ARM64 opens up a, a very very good workflow for me in terms of having a lightweight arm laptop while still being able to use the text editor that I want to. So there you go. If you'd like to learn more about Sublime Text, uh, feel free to check out the links in the show notes. Also let me know what your favorite text editor is in the comments. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have opinions on this and I'm curious what it is. Are there anybody who, who agree with me that uh, I, that about, about Sublime Text or Maybe you're a Vim user, or maybe you're an Emacs user, or whatever. Let me know in the comments below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important, and actually the best security for that is to have a different password for each account on every website that you sign up to. And as a policy, this does make sense, but it also sounds like a nightmare in terms of having to manage, it, manage all that stuff. And that is where Bitwarden comes in because they solve it by providing tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that. You can access your data across multiple different types of devices as well, like your web browser, your mobile apps, a desktop application, and even on the command line. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data as well with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person who has access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. So be sure to go to bitwarden.com slash deal and to get started with your free account. And I think you want to check out their premium account because one, it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right, just $10 per year gets you a bunch of great features like one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. And you can get it all for, like I said, less than a dollar per month. You can also get uh, family accounts and also business-based accounts so that you can be able to easily uh, manage other accounts for other people. Like for example, if you have a bunch of people you want to set up their accounts, you can uh, basically create a family account, which allows you to have easier access to help others set up theirs. And you can also have an, uh, an enterprise or business account which lets you, you know, have a lot more control between sharing passwords back and forth between different employees and that sort of stuff. So many great features in Bitwarden. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind knowing that your passwords and other sensitive data uh, will, will be av- uh, just basically having, you know, you'll know, you'll know that they're going to be secure because of that local encryption is just a great feature as well as all the other great features that it has. And you'll also be supporting a company that truly gets open source. And when you get the $10 per year premium account, you'll let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting This Week in Linux podcast. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some hardware news. And first up, Introware's Proteus Linux laptop. So this has a bunch of different configuration options that you can choose from. And one of the things that I really liked about this is that it has a numpad, which is rare in a laptop, especially with a 15 inch laptop. Most of the time you can see them in a 17 inch laptop because there's so much more room, but they're not very common for the 15 inch. So that's pretty cool to see. Uh, so this has a 15.6 inch matte FHD LED uh, screen or 1080p screen. And it has uh, multiple different options for various different things. So starting off with the processors, you can get the i5-1135G7 or the i7-1165G7. And uh, there's got eight megabytes of cache up to 4.2 gigahertz boost clock with four threads and uh, four cores and eight threads. Or with the i7, you got a 12 megabyte cache up to 4.7 gigahertz boost clock, with again, uh, four cores and eight threads. Another option you can have is the RAM. You can choose uh, that you can have the base model, which comes with eight gigabytes of DDR4, uh, uh, 2666 megahertz RAM, or a configurable up to uh, 64 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM. And in terms of storage, you get a 250 gigabyte PCIe NVMe SSD with the base config, or you can also go up to four terabytes of PCIe, NVMe, SSD storage. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, It has uh, Intel Iris Xe graphics. It has a lot of different ports. Obviously, it has some uh, USB Type-C ports. In fact, one of the USB Type-C ports is a Thunderbolt 4 port which means you can do a lot of cool stuff with it because Thunderbolt 4 is very powerful in terms of giving you ability to charge the laptop's battery with it. You can do all sorts of like daisy chaining with with the Type-C Thunderbolt stuff. Really cool stuff. It also has a uh, headphone-microphone combo jack, so it has a courage jack, Uh, HDMI out, as well as, uh, of course, Ethernet, which all good laptops have some ability to do some level of Ethernet. Uh, whether that's through USB Type-C or whether that's through an actual RJ45 Ethernet jack that this has. You know, hard hardware internet is very important, at least to me anyway. Obviously, if you're going to be portable, that's not practical, but still, Ethernet's best. Moving on. It also has a micro SD card reader and it has uh, you know, also a Wi-Fi, of course, Bluetooth, of course, and a 73-watt-hour battery, which is very, uh, very interesting for this particular model. And uh, it comes in at the price of 819.99 uh, pounds which is converted to USD as uh, 1160. So 1160 USD for those who are interested in that. If you want to learn more about this particular laptop, I'll have links in the show notes below to IntroWare's uh, product page where you can check it out for yourself in the show notes. Some more hardware news and another laptop, actually. A Tuxedo Infinity Book Pro 14 Linux laptop has been released. So this has the same processor that the Intraware one had. So the Intel i5-1135G7 or the i7-1165G7. They just roll right off the tongue. Uh, It also has Intel Iris Iris XE GPU graphics stuff. It also has the base model of 8 gigabytes of RAM up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. It has actually the 256 gigabyte NVMe uh, base configuration for storage as well as up to the 4 terabyte uh, a, a option as well. It has uh, a, some, a USB Type-C, USB Type-A, HDMI, SD card slot, that sort of stuff. Now, it does have a smaller uh, battery. It has a 53-watt-hour battery, and depending on well, you know your configuration, that might matter to you. Uh, but it has some interesting stuff that I wanted to talk about with, for example, it has a glass uh, touchpad with integrated mouse buttons, backlit keyboard. Now, it's not RGB backlit, which is slightly disappointing, uh, because as you know, RGB uh, they, that gives you an extra f- five frames per second in any game you play, uh, based on you know studies that I've made up, and uh, so you know there's that. But what's really interesting is that in addition to the other options for the configuration, they also have two uh, different display options you can choose from. Now they have uh, they're both 14 inches. Uh, They're both uh, IPS and 16 by 10 ratio, but the first option is a 1920 by 1200. Now this is slightly bigger than a 1080p, but relatively kind of the same. Uh, It has 60 Hertz display, which is a IPS display. Uh, So the horizontal resolution of uh, 2k is actually what they're calling it. They're calling it 2k and I learned something based on this news is that the term 2K essentially just means approximately 2,000 pixels horizontally. So that could be 1080p. 1080p is technically you could call that 2K. However, uh, some companies do and some don't. So I anyway, I just thought that I, I I learned something this week because I will no longer use the term 2K because technically. This is 2K, and any 1080p can be argued as being 2K. So now I want to be more, more specific about what I'm referring to, like 3K or 4K, that sort of stuff. But anyway, um, another option that it's offered on this laptop is a 3K display, and they call it the Omnia display. And it has a, a non-glare finish, the same as the other one, but instead of 60 hertz, it's 90 hertz, and uh, the 3K has uh, the resolution of 2 uh, 2880 by 1800 with 400 nits. So this is really cool because you know I've talked about in previous uh, cases where I've mentioned laptops that I was kind of like wanting to have more high definition laptops displays uh, to be introduced in these Linux uh, computers, and this is one of those having that. So that's cool. Now, if the fifty-three watt-hour battery is good for you, then might want to check it out. If you care more about longer battery life, I don't know if the seventy-three watt-hours from the Introware is necessarily better, but I would assume because of the larger capacity. But who knows? Uh, but this is uh, really nice to see a you know a high-end display in a Linux laptop. So I want uh, all of the companies to start introducing higher quality displays because you know I just want that. Now, uh, if you are interested in checking this out, this does come in at a little bit higher price with a a 1,249 euro base uh, configuration or or converted to USD is 1520. So 1,520 USD. Uh, If you want to check that out, I have links to the Tuxedo Infinity Book Pro 14 in the show notes. Up next in the show and some more hardware news, we're going to talk about a new satellite service that is called FemtoStar. So it's a mobile satellite service working towards creating a satellite constellation for open and private communications around the globe. Now, this is really, really interesting. They say that their vision is one of a uh, privacy-respecting and net-neutral mobile satellite service that can be accessed by anyone, anywhere, at any time. So to quote the uh, FemtoStar website, they say that many products only promise privacy Femtostar is different. Privacy and security are verifiably baked into every part of the system, all the way down to the lowest level of details. Uh, we couldn't violate your privacy even if we wanted to. And they also, uh, which reason really I want to talk about it because it's also very interesting is that they're partnering with P- Pine64. Uh, they And Pine64 themselves announced on the blog about partnering with Femtostar. And uh, I looked into a lot more details to see what this is. And it's very cool because uh, Pine sixty four is creating something called uh, a, a, their own kind of communications tool through a more terrestrial structure uh, r- called uh, the Pine Dio, and it's using the LoRa network or L O R A network, and this is really cool because the the combination between this and FemtoStar means that there could be like a satellite communications uh, with like privacy chats and that sort of stuff, but also FemtoStar is open source, so. It's free and open source technology, and this goes for the software and the hardware, and yes, even the satellites themselves. Uh, Public access to the source files and source code is available, and based on the partnering with Pine64, Femtostar says, We expect Pine64's experience with manufacturing and distribution of affordable mass-market hardware to play a key role in making Femtostar usable to the largest number of people possible. And we look forward to integrating Pine64's terrestrial LoRa network with Femtostar's satellite constellation. So this is very very interesting news. If you want to learn more about FemtoStar or the partnership with Pine Sixty Four, I'll have links in the show notes to learn more. Now we don't know exactly what's going to happen because they still need. Uh, there's still like a few more months that they're going to be like uh, rolling out more information about this. But uh, based on what they're saying with the whole experience that Pine Sixty Four has with manufacturing distribution of affordable mass market hardware, I think that there's uh, some exciting stuff coming soon. So links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Wine with Wine 6.9. There's quite a few things that have been done in this. It's it's not a huge release because they're they're doing the releases much more often, which is great to see cuz back in the day it wasn't that fast and now they're doing it way more often which is awesome Uh, and they've had uh, a lot of improvements so for example they've made it the wpcap library converted to pe if you want to know where all the all the information of all these different initialisms mean i'll have links in the show notes for more details But uh, this means it has uh, also support for uh, paper forms in the print spooler and also has more math functions for muscle in the C runtime as various bug fixes. Like, for example, they have fixes in Overwatch and Sims 2 support as well as like 20 other bug fixes and stuff like that. But the thing I want to talk about is that Wine is making some big improvements that I am really happy to see. And that is uh, PEs uh, being supported and converted to supporting PE, which is required to support API hooking. So custom uh, PE loaders or integrity checking that some applications use requires this kind of support through PE, which is great because, for example, anti-cheat software uses this kind of API hooking. So it's great to see Wine supporting more of this because maybe in the future it will give less reason for the the anti-cheat software to pretend that it can't support Linux and Wine and Proton and whatnot. So uh, that's great. So f- fantastic work on the to the Wine team. Uh, keep it up. And if you'd like to learn more, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Core Boot 4.14 has been released. And since 4.13, there have been a lot of changes. So there's 3,660 new commits by 215 developers on this version of Core Boot. And there's, uh, th- these changes have been all over the place. So there's really no way to particularly like, describe what exactly happened in like categories and whatnot but they've had improvements to mainboards, uh chipsets including uh the work to open source implementations of what has been like blobs before which is fantastic and also improvements to the overall architecture of core boot for those who are not familiar with core boot Coreboot, formerly known as Linux BIOS, is a software project aimed at replacing proprietary firmware uh, uh, found in most computers with lightweight firmware designed to perform only the minimum number of tasks necessary to load and run a modern 32-bit or 64-bit operating system. Since Coreboot initializes the bare hardware, it must be ported to every chipset and motherboard that supports it. That's why we're talking about improvements to new mainboards and that sort of stuff. So as a result, Core Boot is only available for a limited number of hardware platforms, but it is growing quite a bit. And in this latest release, the new uh, there's some new main boards to talk about. So there's uh, two new AMD main boards, uh, four Intel ones, the Rock Pro 64 from Fine 64 is also supported, and uh, five System76 boards have been added to support for Core Boot as well as 30 other new boards in this release for 4.14. So this is fantastic. If you'd like to learn more about Coreboot, what it is and what hardware it supports it, you can check out the links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium, inside of the skybox in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics, and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post show plus you can order the linux is everywhere t-shirt by going to dealinstore.com there you can get that awesome shirt which uh, celebrates the proliferation of linux because it has tux blended into the background of the design to convey the message that whether or not you know linux is there it probably is and you can also check out the this week in linux shirt which is also at the dealin store as well as many other things like uh, hoodies mugs hats t-shirts stickers, uh, aprons, so many more things are coming to the store as well, including a sale, so check out for that. And uh, if you'd like to check out more stuff from Destination Linux Network, you can go to DestinationLinux.network and you can find stuff from like more podcasting goodness. We have other shows like GameSphere, Hardware Addict, Pseudo Show, Destination Linux, and so much more. So go to DestinationLinux.network to check out all of those great shows and a couple of those I'm also a co-host of those so check those out especially. Uh I mean not biased or anything, but you need to check out another thing if you would like to contribute to the channel and the show with no cost to you. You can use our affiliate links by going to slash affiliates where you can find links for Amazon, Humble Bundle and many more to help out without any additional cost tuxvizzer.com slash affiliates. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to DLNLive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.